We'll begin with a few verses out of Revelation chapter 5. Last week, we opened up with a few verses out of Revelation chapter 1, in which we saw the, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then the Son in His offices, stated very briefly in Revelation 1, in His offices of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, this, this passage here is, again, enlarging on this image of Christ, the Lamb that was slain, uh, appearing in heaven, in His glorified and exalted state. Uh, also, in, in a very brief scope, as, as priest and as king and as prophet of the whole church of God on earth now. So we'll just read, well, several verses out of Revelation chapter 5 to uh, put us into the atmosphere, as it were, of our subject this morning. Starting in verse 6, this is John speaking. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of incense, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, how great you are, and how little of your ways we actually understand, though we benefit from them all, and yet in our minds and in our hearts we, we approach at a distance, as it were, from this scene that we just read from. And yet when we worship, even as we worship this morning, we are, we are not, not just not just in a way of imagination, but really, truly, and in fact, we are joining the throng that we just read of. We are, we are joining the worship at the center of the worship of the church of God, of which Jesus Christ is the head, which is occurring now in heaven, behind the veil, as it were. We do not see it except with the eyes of faith. And so we thank you for your word that empowers our inward vision so that we might understand that we're coming into the holy presence uh, the, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the cherubim of glory seated upon it, peering down into it. 
as angels desire to look into these things, namely the sufferings of the Son of God and the glory that should follow, in which He is right now. Lord, elevate our minds for us to peer into these things as well and to be in awe of them, and not only so, but to benefit from them in this world, in our trials, in our temptations, and in in all of our woes as well, until that great day, Lord Jesus Christ, when you fully subdue us to yourself and transform us into your image, the firstborn among many brethren. So be with us now as we look into these things which are so holy. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we, the last two weeks actually, we were spending our time in the, the, the time of Christ's humiliation. We looked at his, his office and work as prophet very briefly, really, and, and inadequately, I, I have to say. Uh, but that's what we did. And then last week we came through his life to his death, uh, that is, his work as priest, the beginning, as it were, of his work as priest, offering the sacrifice at the altar of burnt offering, which is outside of the tabernacle. There he offered himself a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So our last two weeks, then, were in the time of Christ's humiliation. And just to refresh our memory, we're... we're looking at him as prophet and priest and king uh, in, in, under the rubrics of his humiliation and then his exaltation. And we're moving through it in time. So uh, the estate of his humiliation is described this way in question 27 of the catechism. It consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law undergoing the miseries of this life the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And if you flip back in your catechism to the question we started with, question 19, you'll notice the the almost identical language. Uh, In fact, I'll just read a portion of question 19. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life and to death itself. So there's the wrath of curse, wrath and curse of God made liable to all the miseries in this life to death itself and Christ's humiliation consisted in part of, of his undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. So you see how intimately he's entering into that state of misery into which man fell by the fall, all mankind. And so he entered into it that he might bring mankind out of it. That was the express purpose of his entering into it. There was no other reason. It wasn't just to serve as, as uh, the, the Socinians of old, and many even today in the spirit of the Socinians would say that he was, he was giving us an example that we should follow in his steps, which certainly it is an example but the express reason was to bring us out of our misery, to bring us out of death. And he does that in his work as high priest. So that was the last two weeks. And now, beginning this morning, and then for the next two weeks, which will end the class, we're in the time of his 
exaltation. This morning we're continuing as priest. Uh, so it's part, part one last week and part two, if you will, of his work as high priest. And then next week we'll look at his work in heaven, in his exalted state as prophet. And then the last week as king. Now, again, to refresh our memory, question 28, uh, the estate of Christ's exaltation. So this is where we are right now, beginning right now. Uh, His exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead. We ended last week with his death on the cross. So his exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. So particularly this morning, we're looking at, 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 at this portion of question 28, that is, his exaltation in ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. Ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. Now, I, I have to come back to John Owen, which I hope I have not wearied you of John Owen yet. Um, was telling my wife this morning that that it would be far preferable instead of me even having a lesson to just bring a couple of volumes of Owen and just read for 40 minutes. Read John Owen in the class because I I can hardly express to you how much I wish uh, and desire that you all would get some volumes of Owen and read him for yourself if you haven't. So this is what Owen says about Christ's entering into his estate of exaltation. No heart can conceive, much less can any tongue express, the glorious reception of the human nature of Christ in heaven. His present state in heaven is a state of the highest glory, of exaltation above the whole creation of God. And and now here I'm repeating, because I quoted this, you may remember, uh, from the very first week in our introduction to this class. His present state in heaven is a state of the highest glory. But he leads not in heaven a life of mere glory, but of office power. This is our high interest. But of office power, work, and duty. He lives as mediator of the church, as king, priest, and prophet. And hereon does our present safety and future salvation depend. Without the continual actings of the office power and care of Christ, the church could not be preserved one moment And the darkness of our faith on this point is the cause of all our disconsolations and most of our weaknesses in obedience. Well, the the sole object in this class has been just just what Owen is referring to here. It's been Christ the mediator, his person and his work, both, not not one or the other. And so we if you remember going back to the beginning, after we after we contemplated very briefly the misery of mankind by the fall, immediately the mediator comes into the picture in the catechism at that point. Immediately from the fall, the mediator comes into the picture. And so we we set our gaze on the mediator himself. We looked at his divine nature. We, We thought about the incommunicable attributes, which are not the father's only, but the spirits and the sons as well. And the son was the object of our interest. So we looked at his divine nature, his aseity and his immutability, his impassibility, uh, all of these great attributes. And we really only looked at a few of them. Uh, All from eternity, this was the son of God. And then we looked at his eternal generation, 
of the Father and discussed that at some length. And then we looked at the covenant of redemption, those eternal counsels before the foundation of the world for the salvation of all those whom the Father foreknew and gave to His Son in love that He might redeem them in time. And then, so then in time, we came to the incarnation and Him taking on two natures in one person forever, God and man. And uh, it's, such a, it's, it's such a beautiful subject. And because of its importance, it's been subject to so many controversies. Who is, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, it's amazing uh, how much ink has been spilled on, on that subject. And, and we tried to, to keep with the Word of God and understand Him in the two divine natures in one person forever. And then after His incarnation, we came... Well, beginning with his incarnation, we began his time of humiliation, which is where we spent the last two weeks. So now we've come to, you you might call it the cream of all of it, and that is his state now of mediatorial glory, still performing the work of a mediator, uh, but in glory, invested with all power in heaven and on earth. And we'll look at this more when we come to his kingship. All power in heaven and earth, as, as Jesus prayed uh, in John 17 in his high priestly prayer Father as, as, as you Father have given me power over all flesh that I might give eternal life to those you've given me that, that's part of his kingship as well and we'll, we'll look at that more uh, power over all flesh everything and this goes back to the class before this on, on the providence of God with, which I think John ended uh, with this great thought, or towards the end of it, of all things being at Christ's disposal for the good of the church. We have to understand that we're the apple of His eye if we're redeemed by Him. We've been in His sight all along from all eternity, and He is manipulating. He is, he is using, uh, He's exercising His power on all created things for the purpose of bringing His church home to Him behind the veil for everlasting glory and fellowship. This is why he cried, Father, I will that those also whom thou hast given me may be with me where I am at, to behold my glory, because thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So these are just high and holy things. So that's where we're at now. Uh, His state of mediatorial glory, revealing as prophet, and bestowing and dispensing as king all of the holy, the glorious, the everlasting fruits of his priesthood. So question 25, that's where we're at, that's what what we took up last week, and we looked at the first part. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself, a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. And so we, we, we set our eyes on the cross primarily and saw that once for all sacrifice. And so now this morning we come to the last clause and his priesthood also consists in his making continual intercession for us. So now he's in the state of glory uh, making continual intercession for those whom God has given him. So those four verbs in that uh, answer, offering up, satisfying, reconciling, and interceding, that's the essence of the priesthood. That's, that's the whole essence of the priesthood. You, you, certainly we can expand and use other words, but everything that Christ does as priest is summed up in those four words. 
And as we noted last week, and we spent some time on this, the, the, the entire priesthood was ordained to show forth, to adumbrate this great work of Christ as high priest. Uh, to expound it, if you will. Uh, it was real. It, it wasn't as if it was imaginary. It was real uh, and efficacious for the people of Israel in that time. But it was only efficacious. It wasn't efficacious in itself. It was efficacious because it was pointing the eyes of their faith to that promised seed of the woman at the very beginning in the garden. And it was pointing their faith to that promised Redeemer. And no one was saved in Israel except those who placed faith on that promised Redeemer. And their faith was buoyed up and supported and given parables, as it were, by all of the work of the high priest. And among other things, many, many things, virtually everything in Israel's history was for this purpose, to to show forth in parables uh, the work of Christ, the great work of Christ, which now we see and we can read uh, the transcript of it in our Gospels. We see what actually was was accomplished. And for that reason, sometimes the, 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 the phrase is, is floated in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and even in Hebrews in the New Testament, the age to come. Uh, we could argue in our eschatology what that refers to, but there's a good reason to think the age to come that when speaking in terms of the times of the Messiah was the times in which we're living now. That, that can be another point. And we, can, we can argue about that. But uh, I stand behind the authority of John Owen on that point anyhow. <laughs> so last week we moved very briefly through the tabernacle, uh, that, that, that altar of burnt offering and then we come to the the laver the bronze laver which was the priest washed his hands and his feet to be pure before he entered the tabernacle and then he comes through the tabernacle and there's the candlestick the showbread uh, again types of Christ as he offered himself uh, to all men when he was in this world as the light and as the bread of life and then you come to the altar of incense right there at the curtain at the veil and the priest takes some of that incense. He goes through the veil, and now he's in the Holy of Holies. And we, again, briefly, we looked, we peered into the Holy of Holies, but we didn't spend our time there because that's the state of Christ's exaltation. The altar of burnt offering was his sacrifice on the cross, if, if we're being consistent with the imagery uh, that the Old Testament is giving us, that the covenant, the Old Covenant is giving us. So this morning we come to the veil, the state of his exaltation, and he's going through it. And so instead of peering into it, we're going to spend the rest of our time in it. So it's, it's this is a very holy and exalted thing. And, it, and it, it's hard, as, as I hope you can appreciate, to even talk about these things and use human language when it's so heavenly, so holy, uh, such a high object for our faith. Uh, but our faith feeds on this. This is the material of our sanctification. Uh, it's, it's the material of everything we need in this world, as, as Owen alluded to in that quote. Uh, the darkness of our faith, he said, on this point in particular, is the cause of all our disconsolations and most of our weaknesses in obedience. And so it behooves us as Christians uh, 
it's not, it, it, it's not our privilege only. It is our duty to meditate on these things, to come within the veil. That's, in Hebrews, that's the exhortation constantly, constantly. Come to the throne of grace. Well, that's the Holy of Holies. That's the mercy seat. It's the throne of grace where we come to, to plead for help in time of need. So, this morning, here we are. We're at the behind the veil, the Ark of the Covenant. And you can read all about this in Exodus. We had preaching on it not that long ago. Exodus 25 through 30, roughly, is the description of all of the furniture in the temple. So the, there was the Ark of the Covenant. First thing, when you go behind the veil, uh, containing the tables of the law, the stone tables of the law. Upon the Ark, the mercy seat, and there were the two cherubim facing each other with wings stretched forward, as we mentioned last week. Uh, wings touching each other. Their faces were toward each other, but they were looking down. They were peering down into the ark again to, to, to show us something of the, the insatiable curiosity that the angels themselves have to look into these things, as Peter tells us. The sufferings of Christ on that side of the veil, and now the glory that should follow right here in the Holy of Holies. They're peering into it saying what a wonder this is. And this is our privilege as well because we've been called within the veil. Although we don't see it with our physical eyes as the glorified saints in heaven do. We see it with the eyes of faith. That's why we have the Word before us. This is what God said here above the mercy seat between the two cherubim I will meet with thee and commune with thee. It's a wonderful promise. So here, to meet, to commune with God, the high priest came through the veil, carrying the fresh blood of the sacrifice. And you can read about that in Leviticus 16 in, in minute detail. It's wonderful. So he comes with the blood as Christ came, fresh with his blood from the sacrifice, as it were. Not, 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 not in the same way the priest did. Not in the same way the priest did. So what did, what did the priest have? And again, we, we can look at all of these minute descriptions in Exodus. Well, he was dressed from head to toe with holy garments and, and he had a mitre on his head with the, the inscription, Holiness to the Lord. So here was the, 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 the representation of the holiness of Jesus Christ entering within the veil, which we'll look at in just a moment. Uh, besides his holy garments and the mitre, he had that breastplate engraved in precious stones the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, not only on his breastplate, but on stones of onyx on his shoulders as well, as if to say if there was any doubt in one place, look here. Here too are the names inscribed of those for whom the priest is doing efficacious, infallible service, atoning for sins once for all. And then, of course, as I already mentioned, the blood. He's bringing in the blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat. Uh, along with the incense that he took from that altar of burning coals to send up a sweet aroma so that God might smell it and be well pleased. So, again, that's, that's the picture, that's the image. Uh, but here Christ comes then through the veil, fresh from the cross, as it were. And, and, and this is what we read in Hebrews. Not only, he came, not only not into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's the express purpose. In God's presence for us. And literally, it's before God's face. Before the face of God. He's appearing for us. In our nature and for our nature. Well, this is where we ended last week. His offering up on the cross. As as, uh, Murray had put it, uh, you you remember that that memorable phrase. He, He said... I almost hesitate to say it, but I must say it. This is God in our nature, forsaken of God. That's, that's, that's a controversy for some, but this is what, what, what John Murray said. And so that's, what, that's where we ended last week. He's offering himself up through the eternal spirit, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And that's such a significant statement that He might bring us to God. He wasn't merely doing it for us, but He was doing it for us so that He might bring us to God with Him. Remember that they may be with me where I am at to behold my glory. It's the whole point. It's union, communion with our great High Priest, with Jesus Christ. So that's where we ended last week. He was buried then, and we'll go through, we're not even going to spend time on this now, but when we come to King, we'll look more at his resurrection. Uh, but he was buried. In three days, he rose again. He appeared to his disciples, again, as the firstborn now among many brethren. And then after 40 days, we read in the first chapter of Acts, after 40 days, he led his disciples out as far as Bethany. And as he blessed them, he was parted from them, and a cloud received him out of their sight. John Owen alludes to this verse and says this is him going it's behind the clouds as it were behind the veil out of their sight and then where? out of their sight into the sight of the cherubim over the mercy seat the cherubim of glory that is through the veil and into heaven itself that's, that's the imagery and that's the reality now we have the imagery there now we have the reality Christ through the veil into heaven itself with 10,000 times 10,000 angels around the throne crying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's where He is now. Again, referring back to Owen's original quote here, he, he, He entered into glory not just to receive glory and honor, but to do temple work, is the phrase. To do temple work as mediator, as high priest of the whole church of God. So now, in keeping with the example of the high priests, we we want to see the reality of it with Christ as our high priest in his estate of glory interceding for us. So, he came in holy garments. This This was not like the holy garments of the priests that that had the righteousness from outward being put upon them, uh, imputed as it were. Uh, Christ's righteousness came from within. Thy law is within my heart. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, through and through, sanctified in the womb by the Holy Spirit, without sin throughout life. So he, he was performing true righteousness, the only righteousness ever performed in our nature. Well, he offered himself in righteousness without blemish. Again, that's thinking of last week. 
But then He was raised and He was ascended in the very same righteousness. Psalm 18, there's so many psalms that are Christological in in nature that, that, that David writes. And David's speaking of himself, but he's speaking as a prophet, David the prophet. And he's speaking as if Christ were speaking through him by the Holy Spirit. And Psalm 18 is one of these. And if you read it from beginning to end, you see his humiliation and his exaltation. Uh, right through Psalm 18. It's wonderful. He's sent from above. This, we, we can hear Christ saying this uh, after his, his death on the cross. He sent from above. He drew me out of many waters. He brought me forth into a large place because He delighted in me. For all His judgments were before me and I put not away His statutes from me. Therefore hath the Lord rewarded me according to to my righteousness, according to my righteousness. Well, that's the righteousness of the eternal Son of God. Again, being obedient, being righteous in our nature, for our nature, and the beginning of His reward was, as the priests could not go in without holy garments, and that was their access, as it were, in, otherwise they would die. In the same way, Christ's reward for his righteousness, began, this wasn't the whole of his reward, but the beginning of it, you might say, was entrance behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. That is, his resurrection. Death could not hold him because he was holy. There was nothing that could keep him in the grave because he had no personal sin. He bore imputed sins, the sins of the whole church of God, and they were dispensed with. And the Father and the Spirit, I might add, and himself brought him up from the dead. And he ascended on high because he was entering his reward for his righteousness, for his personal spotless righteousness, which he had gained for us to put upon us. By the obedience of one man, many should be made righteous. Well, then he came also with his own blood. Holy garments carrying blood. Hebrews 9, by his own blood he entered in once having obtained eternal redemption for us. And with his blood he brought the incense, again, from the live coals of the altar, sending up this sweet-smelling savor. The two go hand in hand. Uh, They're separate things, just as everything was separate in the furniture of the tabernacle. But in Christ, it's all drawn together into one, into one holy, heavenly person. Uh, and so it's, 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 it's difficult sometimes to make the distinction that we, that we make when we're looking at the furniture and the articles in the temple. And so here the blood and the incense really go together. They, they constitute together one thing, which is the atonement. Full, full atonement. The incense and the blood, are you could say, are just his intercession, his prayers for the saints offered up in the virtue and by the virtue of His once-for-all sacrifice. He poured out His soul unto death. These are the final words of Isaiah 53, from which we read a little last week. He poured out His soul unto death and made intercession for the transgressors. You see how the two go together. They're one in the same atonement. Uh, The altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense are both brought, the blood and the incense, into the Holy of Holies. So it's, it's one atonement, full, free, complete, exhaustive. 
Wesley's great hymn. We all, we all know it. And, and uh, I mean, all four verses are great. But the one verse that would come to mind here when we're thinking of the blood and the incense coming in to the Holy of Holies to meet with God and commune with Him between the two cherubim over the mercy seat, Wesley's words just, just ring in the ears. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let the, that ransomed sinner die. That's just tremendous words. And the picture of it is, is so lively when, when we think about it. Well, this is how Hugh Martin put it. Hugh Martin wasn't a poet, but what a great theologian. Better theologian, I might add, than Charles Wesley. And Hugh Martin says this in that, in that book. Oh, actually, I take it back. It wasn't in that book. It was in a sermon uh, that he preached. He says this, The offering of Christ culminates in His intercession, riveting the great propitiatory offering to the throne of God on high. Now, that's a wonderful picture. Riveting that sacrifice to the throne of God, which was once perfected on Calvary, but now is perpetually presented and perpetually accepted in heaven. That's so succinct and full. So here is a savor, you might say, the blood and the incense together, a savor of perfect rest in in the, the holy and the just mind of God the Father. He's at rest in the Son. That's where He perfectly rests. Perfectly well pleased, my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased in accomplishing all that He's done for those who I have foreknown from before the foundation of the world that I've set my love upon. He has brought them to me. What a faithful servant. What a glorious servant. And I'm pouring out all my rewards upon Him. And again, He's doing so not just as the eternal Son of God in His divine nature, but now in His human nature. And that's where we're brought in receiving all the poured out blessings of God the Father upon His Son and us in Him. Ephesians 5. Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. That's Ephesians 5 too. You see how Paul combines those two. And then he also combines it here. And, and, and here we come to the sermons we've been having on the past, the past several Sunday mornings including this morning, uh, Paul in Romans 8, God is for us. Who can condemn? It is Christ that died, yea, more that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. So, He died for us, He's risen for us, He ascended for us, and He's interceding for us. It's all part of the one work of our great high priest. So he came with the holy garments of his own personal righteousness. He came with the blood and the incense. And then, well, who is he interceding for? A crucial question. One that divides the whole Christian church in the world today, and it has for centuries. Who was he interceding for? Who did he die for? Well, according, again, to the map that we have drawn up for us in the Old Testament, and then explicitly brought to us in the New Testament... He died, he intercedes for all without exception whose names are engraved upon the priest's breastplate. Every single one, not one accepted, but they're the names on the breastplate. In the Old Testament, it was the tribes of Israel. Everyone. 
And I don't mean by that to say that every one of the tribes of Israel gained eternal life. Not all of them had faith. But what I'm saying is it's the picture of the whole church of God receiving eternal life because Christ, our intercessor, brings our names. Everyone that the Father gave him, it's, it's unthinkable. Uh, to use the word that Pastor Sharp used last week, monstrous to think of Christ leaving one of those names on his breastplate uninterceded for, unatoned for. We, we, we don't even we think about it for a moment and we shrink back from that thought. This is so glorious what Christ has accomplished. Exodus 28. This is the model. He, that is the priest, shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. Very significant. When he goes into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So here we see what can only be called limited atonement. We have to use the word here. We could use particular redemption if we want to. Some prefer that. Either way, it means the same thing. It means that there's a focus upon a particular people in a particular covenant for whom he was particularly offering and for whom he is particularly interceding. I mean, it's just inescapable language and biblical logic. Those for whom he died... He intercedes. The same blood for the same people. What's the point? of, of is it To make an argument that we want to say that it's limited? No. It's limited precisely so that it might be efficacious. It's not just an offering. He's not going in behind the veil to, to offer reconciliation to the people outside the veil. That's not what is going on there. He's actually conferring it upon them. Upon the name of everyone upon his heart. It, it's a conferring. It's not an offering. The offering is there. We saw it two weeks ago when Jesus cried out, if any man thirst, let him come to me. He's inviting every man into that covenant in which the name might be indelibly represented behind the veil. So when he's going in, he's sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. Again, he's not just offering. He's conferring it. As if to say, it is finished and it is sealed. And this is what Christ, our high priest, does by the blood, as, as Hebrews says at the very end, the blood of the everlasting covenant, not the blood of the old covenant of bulls and goats, which could never take away sins, he says, but by his own blood he entered once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us all. That is for all of us whose names, again to use the, the Wesley hymn, whose names are written on his hands, which is in one of the other verses of that hymn. Again, to, 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 uh, I don't want to weary you with this thought, but it's, so, it's like, can you be wearied with, with um, you know, uh, uh, never mind, I'm not even going to use that example. It, it'll, it'll abase the, the subject. Uh, thine they were from eternity. This is what Jesus says. Thine they were, Father, and thou gavest them me. There's the Father foreknowing in love, giving them to the Father. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me to do something for them. And He's done it. And He's in glory now, not having done it only, but continually doing it. Interceding for us continually. And there's so much. That opens up such a great subject that we, we can't even get into. What is He doing now every day for us? Could we stand a moment, even having the blood, even having the blood, could we stand a moment without His intercession? No. We could not. The two go hand in hand. We can never separate them. And we can never do without them. 
So Christ enters in, not to offer, but to actually confer eternal life upon those the Father gave him. Again, to quote from John 17, that I should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given me, that those whom thou hast given me me, may be with me where I am. Now, that brings us to just a few verses in Hebrews. And I want to read this. Hebrews chapter 4. This is the sum of, of it all, of everything we've been talking about. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest who can, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That is behind the veil. That's where He has invited us and where He commands us to come. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, again, that, that is worthy of so much uh, exposition, those three verses there. But I want to end with this quote. Again, to come back to Owen one more time, please, if you'll pardon me. He says this, He, that is Christ, emptied Himself and laid aside His glory for a season, the time of His humiliation, to undertake the work of mediation. But as all the shame, reproach, and misery with death itself, as all this deterred Him not from His work then, so now all the glory that He is presently environed with in heaven diverts Him not from continuing it. He never departs from the sanctuary to prepare for a new sacrifice, as the priests did of old. There is no moment in time wherein it may not be said, He now appeareth for us. And this is the foundation and the safety of the church in all ages. And all the diligent consideration of this will carry us safely through all difficulties, temptations, and trials to the end. We'll end with that quote from, from Owen. Uh, but really, we, we, I mean, we're just, we're just on the edges of this. It's such a great thing, but it's the, it, it's, the, it's the birthright of every one of us who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's close in prayer. We thank you for these things, Father. We thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.